Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 5th of November 2023, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurtz speaking on Psalm 8. What are the most important characteristics of a human being? What makes us as human beings different from the other animals that live in this world? What is our purpose as human beings? And how should we go about pursuing this purpose to find contentment and fulfilment? In short, why are we here? Now, those are really big questions, aren't they? And they're ones that are sometimes summarised by this particular term, anthropology. Now, that term is quite often used for the study of human societies and cultures. But the Greek word, anthropos, which I think is coming up now, means man in the sense of human being. And in the broadest sense of the word, anthropology is our understanding of human beings, what they are, what they're here for. And of course, for Christians, the entire Bible is there to answer this question. But if there's one passage in the Bible that gives us a really good summary, a really accessible summary of biblical anthropology, the Bible's approach to what we're here for as human beings, it's the passage that David read to us just now. It's Psalm 8, which is described once again in its subtitle as a Psalm of David. It's also, it says, for the director of music. So perhaps that's the ancient equivalent of Barbara Griffiths that this is written for. Uh, according to the Gittith, we're not quite so sure what that means. It's not referring to the most awkward member of the music group in ancient Israel, but is, it seems, a musical term. We're not quite sure what that means. When I saw it, according to Gittith, I thought, how rude. <laughs> and although it's a psalm that speaks of what human beings are all about, it's one that starts and finishes by speaking of God. So its first and last verses, you might have noticed, when David read it to us, are identical. They're exactly the same. They say this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, I wonder if you look at those words, whether you can see something strange about them. Something that you might think at first is a typo. What have you noticed? That first line, what can you notice about it? It's taking me back to school teacher days, I'm waiting. Yes, well done, Elaine. Lord at first is in capital letters, and then it isn't. So what is going on there? Well, something quite significant that we need to note. In the Hebrew language in which the Old Testament is written, there are actually several words for God. And one of them is Elohim, which, like our word God, can either be used for the one God that we worship or for the many gods that have been worshipped by people. And Jesus used this word in its Aramaic form when he died on the cross. You might remember him quoting Psalm 22 to say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that is one of the words that we get in the Old Testament for God, Elohim which is normally translated by saying God or gods. But then there's another, there's Yahweh. Yahweh in the Bible is the special covenant name for Israel's God. He reveals himself 
in that way. Now, Hebrew doesn't print vowels, and given that this name was so sacred that Jews wouldn't speak it out loud, we're not totally sure how it was pronounced. We think it was Yahweh, but we can't be totally sure. Some versions translate it for rather complicated reasons as Jehovah, with slightly different vowels. But most English translations, and we saw this in our reading, show that it's talking about Yahweh by using capital letters for Lord, translating it the Lord in capital letters. So when we see the Lord in capital letters in certainly the NIV and most English translations of the Bible, that's talking about Yahweh, the covenant name for Israel's God. And finally, there's the Hebrew word Adonai. Now that, like Elohim, has a wider usage than just referring to Israel's God. It means master or Lord in the more common sense of that word. And Adonai can be used for subjects, by subjects for their king. It can be used by slaves for their master, or it can be used by worshippers for their God. And the way that English translations distinguish Adonai from Yahweh is through giving it as Lord in the lowercase, not giving it in capitals. So apologies for that digression, but it's all quite useful stuff, isn't it, for knowing what the Bible is on about. And of course, it makes sense of the first line of this psalm. Let's have that up again. O Lord, our Lord, Yahweh, our Adonai, Yahweh, our master, it says at the start and the end, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Majestic means glory, it means splendor, it means magnificence. It's a term associated with royalty. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, it's saying, is both our Lord and Master and his ruler over the earth because he has set his glory above the heavens. Heaven in the Bible is the control center for the earth. The one who reigns in heaven rules on earth. And God's glory, his royal splendor or magnificence is associated or located there. And the positioning of this verse at the start and at the end of this psalm is a reminder that we can't understand human beings. We can't get our anthropology right, to use that technical word. We can't understand our purpose as human beings in the world independently of the reign of the God who created us and the God who created everything. There are many systems, of course, in the modern age that have tried to do precisely that. The Enlightenment from the 18th century onwards was basically an attempt to kick God upstairs and to understand human beings and the world independently of God. And philosophies such as humanism, Marxism and communism were then built upon this. And when they first emerged, those philosophies are seen as quite exciting. People are very often very excited about their potential for human flourishing. So Lincoln Steffens was an American who visited the Soviet Union in 1919 when communism was really in its infancy. And he came back and made this very famous statement, I've seen the future and it works. That was when communism was in its infancy. But sadly, as we know, communism didn't work. It led to the most terrible oppression and tyranny during the years that it dominated Russia and Eastern Europe. And what we immediately get 
in Psalm 8 is the very opposite of this. Before the psalm gets going in its explanation of the role of humans under God's rule in the world, it says these words. It says, from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of our enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. And that verse is there to show that God's rule of the world is anything but oppressive. Because God's way of putting the world right is through its most vulnerable members. And it's within this context that Psalm 8 tells us of the role of human beings within God's creation. The writer expresses awe that the one who created the heavens, the moon and stars made man, in other words, human beings, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. Now, the heavenly beings here may refer to the moon and the stars. It may refer to the angels or perhaps both. It may even refer to God himself. And what it's speaking of is a delegated sovereignty given to human beings, given to us by God, a sovereignty over this world. And it's reinforced by what follows in the psalm. Towards the end of Genesis chapter 1, right at the start of the Bible, and its account of creation, it also speaks about human beings, doesn't it? It speaks about both men and women being made in God's image. Why? Precisely in order to rule over creation. The account in Genesis talks about a delegated sovereignty from God given to human beings to rule over creation. And going back to Psalm 8, that same thought is expanded upon as it declares this about humankind. It says these words, You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. It's all a huge statement of the awesome, indeed sacred responsibility that God has given us as human beings. The responsibility to steward, care for, and yes, rule over creation. Now, there are several potential applications of this, aren't there? Some of them will, I'm sure, be occurring to you already. The most obvious, of course, is the solemn calling that we have as God's people to take care of creation. Talk of humans ruling over creation, that can make us nervous because it can be seen as encouraging the Earth's servitude and exploitation. If we rule over the world, surely we'll just raid its resources and treat it badly. That, of course, can and does happen. But that's bad rulership. In the same way that we don't abolish parenting, because neglectful parenting exists, it's the same with our rule of creation. Human beings are given, in regard to creation, something similar to the calling that parents have towards their children. The call to exercise their authority in a loving and responsible manner. To exercise their authority in a way that makes the object of that rule flourish in the way that it was made to. In short, 
to be godlike in our approach to it. And that's why our attentiveness to things like global warming and similar issues of care for creation is so all-important. I often preach, as I think you'll know, about the Christian hope being in resurrection to God's renewed creation rather than going to heaven when we die. And just one of the problems with the latter when it becomes seen as the Christian hope is that it tends to kick issues like care of creation into touch. And that's not just potentially an ecological disaster, it's a theological disaster as well. Because it's missing almost everything that gives human life its purpose, its direction, and its motivation. According to Psalm 8 and the rest of the Bible, God gave human beings, you and I, the awesome responsibility of ruling over this world and that's something that we need to take with the utmost seriousness if we claim to belong to him. That is the whole basis of a proper approach to stewarding the environment. But there's another important application of this as well, which is the honesty that we need to have about humanism. Humanism, in its post-enlightenment form, regards all human beings as important, which can seem purely positive. But the basis of why it says that is actually problematic. And that's because if you don't believe that the creator God gave authority to human beings to rule the world, you have to come up with another rationale for us being in charge of it. You have to explain it one way or another. And really, the only thing left if you don't believe that God has given that authority, the only thing really left is belief in the survival of the fittest. The human beings are in charge of the world as really an accident of nature because we're the most sophisticated of the animals that exist. Now, in theory, that can still lead to good stewardship of the earth, and it sometimes has. Humanists have sometimes put Christians to shame in their care for creation. But just as often, that survival of the fittest philosophy has had rather unfortunate results, to put it mildly. It's resulted in what's called social Darwinianism, where human beings seen as more sophisticated than others gain the right to rule over those who are less so. That is the ugliest side of where humanism can end up. People often point, with some justification, to the number of wars that have been fought because of religion. And as Christians, we have to hold our hands up about those wars, particularly where they've involved the Christian faith and the terrible things that have been done in the name of Jesus Christ, which put Christianity to shame. But by the same token, we need to acknowledge that by far the greatest amounts of mass murder committed by regimes have been done by those that were avowedly humanist in their basis. And here are three of the most terrible ones. Nazi Germany under Hitler, even to a greater extent, which often we forget, Soviet Russia under Stalin, and perhaps even greater than that, communist China under Mao. They're prime examples. Those who believe that God gave them rule over creation 
can and have done terrible things with that rule. But unlike humanism, the basis of their claim to authority that it's given by God, and crucially that it's exercised under his authority, means that that misrule can be called to account and it can potentially be put right. And of course, like all of the Psalms, that takes us back to Jesus. You see, the flaw which uh, could be pointed to in everything I've said so far, the flaw in all this talk about human beings being given rulership over God's creation, whether I'm invoking Psalm 8 or Genesis 1, is that, is that human beings have done it so incredibly badly. Not just global warming, but rampant global injustice witness to this. But one of the most amazing truths of the Bible is that God never gives up on his project of making his image-bearing creatures into rulers over his creation. However bad things get, God never scraps that and goes for a plan B. You might think that having done so badly, human beings might at some stage have got the sack from our role of ruling over the earth, the mandate that God gave us in creation. Having mucked it up so spectacularly, you might think God would think, hold on a minute, I'll go for a different idea. But the God of the Bible doesn't do that. The God of the Bible remains faithful to the intentions that he pronounces right at the start of creation. He creates human beings, you and I, to be the people who have this awesome responsibility for caring for, stewarding, and ruling over creation. And the God of the Bible, as always, finds a way to put his project back on track. And according to the New Testament, of course, he does this through the sending of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 2, we don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, but it's an amazingly profound letter. And in Hebrews chapter 2, its writer quotes Psalm 8. And he quotes Psalm 8, or she, we don't know who wrote it, to show how Jesus came into the world to be that fully human being that God had always intended to rule the world. And using the words of Psalm 8, he speaks of Jesus, I think it's the next line actually, I think I put them slightly out of order. He speaks of Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now being crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And that means two things. First, it means that a human being came in Jesus Christ who was finally able to reflect God's image and was therefore able to be crowned with glory and honour. And that's speaking, back to the previous slide, that's speaking of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven to be the one who rules on earth. But secondly, because Jesus came to taste death for everyone, it means that everyone who belongs to Jesus could have that vocation restored to be his rulers over creation. Those who belong to Jesus could be renewed in that vocation that we were given at the start of creation to be his rulers. The New Testament, you see, not least in its last book of Revelation, speaks of those who belong to Jesus one day becoming priests and rulers over God's new creation. 
And we're given God's Holy Spirit so that process can begin right now in the present. The Christian hope isn't going to heaven when we die. The Christian hope is resurrection to a new creation with a responsibility to care for and rule that creation beginning now. And we're renewed by God's Spirit so we can do that so much better than otherwise. And all of this needs to form the basis of anthropology. It all needs to form the basis of the way in which we think. What does it mean to be a human being? Why are we here? What are we here to do? What's our role here on earth? All of this is there to inform it. And as I said earlier, the start and the end of this psalm and what it says about God is crucial. It says this, O Lord, our Lord, our Master, our Ruler, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It says that at the start, it says that at the end, and sandwiched between this double statement about God, what it says about human beings is absolutely crucial. What it's saying is it's not an accident of nature that put us in charge of the world. Nothing as trivial as that. Psalm 8 declares it's a God-given responsibility with huge implications for how we care for creation, both in terms of the environment and justice towards other people. Both of those things are absolutely fundamental. fundamental. When we get our eschatology right, in other words, how God's going to make it all end up, resurrection and new creation, when we get our anthropology right, a vocation that human beings are given, then things like care for the world and the environment and justice move from being side issues to absolutely top of the agenda for anyone who claims to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to restore that vocation within human beings, not to abolish it. And the Holy Spirit was given to us precisely to equip us for this renewed vocation. So in the light of Psalm 8, this wonderful uh, psalm, let's thank God for the responsibility that is entrusted to us. And let's humbly and gratefully, through the power of the Holy Spirit and by following his Son, Jesus Christ, seek to exercise that responsibility as faithfully as possible. We're here to lovingly rule over creation on God's behalf. And so, as those who belong to the perfect human being, Jesus Christ, and those who possess God's Holy Spirit in consequence, let's do that as well as we possibly can.